But it's awesome to be with you today. Mesa Campus, South Mountain Campus, online. Are you excited to be in the house of God this morning? Yes. Now, it's extra special, like Pastor Ryan said, for me to be here because I grew up in this church. I did ministry here. This church saw me in my awkward junior high years, okay? It saw me in my awkward high school years. And now I'm back as an awkward adult. So we're just going full circle today. It's going to be a great morning. And today I want to share a message with you that is a personal message, something that God has been speaking to me in my life this year and uh, encouraging me. And I just want to share it with you in hopes that maybe there's something in it that can encourage you as well. Is that all right? Awesome. I'm glad you said yes, or this would be very awkward. I want to talk today about wrestling. And I want to look at a story in the Bible about a wrestling match between a man named Jacob and God. And so I want to open up by just reading this wrestling match with you to start off with. We're going to read it in Genesis 32, starting in in verse 22. It says this, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Verse 28, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you for the incredible opportunity to be here in your presence this morning. Lord, from South Mountain to Mesa to online, I just pray that every person listening will hear your word, God, your living and alive word, and that it will touch their heart. God, give us ears to hear. Open our hearts to receive for us. God, speak to us this morning. We love you, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever watched a movie and the first scene happens and then it cuts and it says something like, three years earlier or two weeks earlier, right? And then the whole movie, you're watching the events to get you back to that opening scene, right? Well, that's what we're going to do, okay? This wrestling match is the opening scene, but we're actually going to go back a little bit and see how we got there because the backstory matters, okay? Your backstory matters. Did you know that? Now, we don't dwell in the past, but isn't it good sometimes to look at the past to celebrate how far God has brought us? Our past is part of our testimony, right? I'm so thankful that God doesn't waste our past pain. But if we let him, he actually uses our past pain to give us present purpose. Isn't that powerful? And so Jacob's backstory matters. And I want to go back and look at it a little bit to, to see how he gets to this point, this, this wrestling match, that we can fully understand what's happening here. 
And so we're going to look back a few chapters. And the first thing you got to understand is that Jacob is a twin. He has a twin brother named Esau, and they were as different as you can get. It says this in Genesis 25, verse 24. It says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment. That's pretty gross. So they named him Esau. Esau literally means hairy. So all you mothers-to-be, I got a great name for your son right there. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. So these twin boys were as different as could be, right? Like in simple stereotypes, we see Esau, who is this wild hunter man. He probably had tanned skin because he was outside so much. We know he was hairy, so I imagine this a massive beard on this guy, right? Like he would fit in well with the GC security team, okay? Because it seems like they all got big beards. That's Esau. And then on the other side, we got Jacob. I picture him maybe a little paler because he's inside. It says he likes to stay inside. Maybe, you know, tall, skinny, a little nerdy. I'm not going to say what team he's going to fit in, but you can use your imagination. This is like the setup to every good 80s teenage movie. Okay, the jock versus the nerd, the brains versus the bronze. So they're very different. And then on top of that, it says that the parents had their favorite. They loved one and not the other. Now, I have two boys. They're not twins. Maddox is three. He is a passionate, lively three-year-old. Loves to express his feelings. He uh, is still a little far from God on his spiritual journey, but we're praying for him. We're believing. And then I have a seven-month-old named Cohen, and he is a sweet, sensitive baby already, just has a sweet spirit. I'm pretty sure he's already filled with the Holy Ghost. I think I caught him praying in tongues over his older brother, and I'm like, yes, Lord. Um, they're just very different. And, and I can say there, there are certain times throughout the day where uh, I might like one kid a little more than the other, you know what I mean? Usually the one who doesn't talk back to me. Any parents uh, feel me on that one? But, but I could never imagine loving one and not the other. I just, I can't imagine that. I mean, that's, that's pretty messed up. And so we see in this family, there's already a lot of unhealthy dynamics going on. Can we agree on that? And it kind of comes to this breaking point when Esau stumbles in from hunting one day, and the Bible says he is famished. He is starving. And we all know you don't make great decisions when you're hangry, Right? And it just so happens that his brother Jacob is cooking some soup. And so Esau demands this soup from Jacob, and Jacob sees this as an opportunity to get something he wants. And so in verse 31, Jacob replies to him and says, first, sell me your birthright. You have to understand in Middle Eastern culture, This birthright was given to the firstborn son. It meant that you would inherit a double portion compared to your other siblings. You would also take over as head of the family from your father after he passed. Okay, Imagine it in our terms. Your father 
is the owner of Chick-fil-A. Okay, holy chicken. And yeah, Chick-fil-A gets a clap. All right, okay, I see, I see your priorities. And your father owns Chick-fil-A. You're the firstborn son. You have the birthright. That means when he passes, you're going to inherit a double inheritance compared to your siblings, money and assets. You get double. And then on top of that, you become the owner of Chick-fil-A. Now, can we agree? That would be a very big deal, right? You wouldn't just give that up easily, would you? Of course not. Esau's birthright was a big deal. And so when Jacob offers him a bowl of soup in return, it's almost laughable. Like I read that and I think, Jacob, you couldn't even have offered him a juicy, delicious steak. Are you kidding me? A bowl of bean soup? Is he kidding? Or maybe Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. Maybe he knew his brother and he knew what his brother valued and didn't value. Because look how Esau responded in verse 32. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me anyway? Jacob said, all right, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil soup. He ate and drank and he got up and left like it wasn't a big deal. That might be the most expensive bowl of soup ever sold. But listen, Esau allowed his momentary hunger to cloud his judgment and he did not think past the feeling in his belly to grasp what he was giving up how it wouldn't just affect him, but it was going to affect his children and their children and their children. And you might not be expecting a huge inheritance of riches from your earthly father. You may not be in line for Chick-fil-A. You may not be expecting great wealth to come your way from your parents. But I have great news for you. You have an even greater inheritance ahead. When you are a believer, the Bible says that you do have an inheritance from your heavenly father. Romans 8, 17 says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Titus 3, 7 says, because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and he gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Our inheritance is eternal life in the kingdom of God. And what we learn from Esau is that we have to value this spiritual inheritance as the most precious thing in our life. We can't give it up for anything. Too often we see Christians who give up this spiritual inheritance to satisfy what feels good in the present. Don't trade your eternal inheritance for temporary satisfactions. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You were made for so much more than chasing the temporary pleasures of this world. Esau's mistake was not valuing his inheritance. But let's talk about Jacob for a second because he's not the innocent party in this transaction. He was given the name Jacob because he came out grasping the heel of his older brother Esau. Jacob means heel catcher. 
And this really gives foreshadow to his life. It, it defined who he became. The, pi- the Bible calls it grasping the heel. We might say it as he got ahead by tripping others up. He schemed and he manipulated his way to get the blessings he wanted. He did it to get the birthright, and then we're going to see he does it to get the blessing from his father. While Esau was out hunting for food, Jacob went into his elderly father who had poor eyesight, and he pretended to be Esau. He goes as far as to put goat skin on his arms and his neck so that when the father reached out and touched him, he would feel like his hairy Sasquatch brother. That's sneaky, am I right? He was sneaky. And he, he tricked his father. His father prayed this prayer of blessing over him that should have been Esau's. It was a very special rite for the firstborn. But Jacob wanted the blessing from his father and from God. And isn't it good to want God's blessing? It is, right? It's good that Jacob wanted God's blessing. The problem is that he went about it the wrong way. Trying to do God's work in the wrong way distorts God's purpose. And in the end, it just hurts people involved. Have you ever heard the saying, the end justifies the means? Well, they don't. There are terrible examples Throughout scripture, throughout the world, today Christians who think they can justify their sinful actions if it means bringing about a greater good. And and this way of thinking is not new. It's a temptation from Satan that's been around uh, since the Bible times. Paul talks about it in Romans 3. There are actually people saying that their sinful actions were okay, that they served a good purpose because it just pointed people to the righteousness of God. They were trying to justify their sin. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You are wrong for thinking that. There is never a reason that your sin is justified. It's not right. Our means and our end need to line up and reflect God's values. Jacob thought he could fulfill God's purpose by deceit and manipulation, cutting corners, doing things his own way. But that's not how it works. And he paid a high price. When Esau finds out what happens, he's outraged. He plans to kill his brother Jacob. And so Jacob has to go on the run for his life. For the next several years, he is separated from his family and he faces hardship after hardship, difficulty after difficulty. You can read in the next several chapters all that he went through until finally comes to a point where God says, Jacob, it's time to go back home after decades and decades. And this man, he was going to have to face his brother Esau, right? I mean, after all these years, no communication, no text message, no awkward email, okay? They hadn't talked or seen each other in decades. And before Jacob just walks into Esau, it says in Genesis 32, verse 3, it says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Eden. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to you, my Lord, that I might find favor in your eyes. This was a peace offering. I come in peace, Esau. 
And then in verse 6 it says, When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. This does not sound good, does it? This is not looking good for Jacob. There's only one reason Jacob can think that his brother is bringing 400 men, and that would be to kill his little con artist booty, okay? It's not good. And so that night, before Jacob is going to meet his brother again, that night he probably thinks he's about to die. He probably thinks he's about to watch his family die. And so it says that he sends his family away and he decides to spend it alone. And while he's there alone, a guy shows up and they start wrestling. And now we're back to the opening scene. Are you with me? See, the truth is, is that we're going to be faced with times that we're going to have to wrestle with God. We are going to face things that are bigger than us, things that overwhelm us. You're going to go through things that are so incredibly difficult. And the only solution is to wrestle it out with God. I'm talking about grabbing a hold of God and letting him do the difficult, the painful, yet needed task of working on you and the things in your life. And isn't it pretty incredible that we serve a God who invites that, who invites us to lean in, to engage with him, to fight through the difficult moments? And we don't fight with God to win. No, 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 no. We fight with God to get our spirit to a place of surrender. We fight with God so that we get to the place where we let him grow us and challenge us and mature us. And so I want to look at Jacob's physical wrestling match to help us understand what does it really look like to spiritually wrestle with God. And we can learn a few things. The first is that we have to get alone to wrestle with God. Did you notice that Jacob went to a place by himself? God wanted to get him alone to deal with him. And he has to do the same with us often. It's not always what our flesh wants to do, right? We want to try to handle things ourselves, to be surrounded by friends and family all the time, to stay busy, 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 so that ultimately we don't have to be alone with God. And we can Google and click and scroll and meet with people and read books and go on far off travels, but the baggage in our soul goes with us. And what if we just took some time to get away from our family, friends, social engagements, we shut down our phones and devices, and you simply got alone with God and wrestled it out. No quick, easy fixes, just you and God. We see Jesus himself, while he was on earth, made it a point to withdraw from the crowds to spend time with God. Jesus did it. He valued that alone time with God. Check this out. In Matthew 14, verse 23, it says, After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1.35. This will really convict you if you aren't a morning, morning person. It says this. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Wow. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
And then, of course, the night before Jesus was to be arrested and crucified, where do we find him? He's alone in a garden, praying, crying out to God. He was wrestling it out with God. You see, the point of being alone with God is to create space in your spirit to hear from him. And we desperately need this in our culture. Our culture is loud. Our culture is noisy. We fill every free moment with voices into our life. We can pick up our phone and have hundreds of voices speaking into our life as we scroll and click and scroll. And yet we struggle to make room for the one voice that we truly need to hear from the most. God wants to get you alone so that he can work in your life. You see, being alone with God is powerful. We give him the chance to confront us, which is sometimes why it's hard to be alone with God because confrontation hurts, doesn't it? It can be painful, but yet it's what causes us to grow. Maybe you're scared to be alone with God because you're struggling with shame. And like Adam and Eve who hid after their sin, you find yourself wanting to hide with God and you hide from God by staying busy and avoiding intimate moments with him. But ignoring shame won't make it go away. Sometimes shame can make you feel like you're unworthy to just be in his presence. You're embarrassed to be alone with him. But guess what? He knows, he already knows, and he loves you the same. And like Adam and Eve who hid in the garden, the first thing God did is he called out to them and he is calling out to you as well. Don't let your shame hold you back, but draw close to God in your shame. And you're gonna find that he's actually the only solution for your shame. Draw near him. Maybe you're scared to get alone with God because you don't want him to confront your pride. You're scared he's gonna challenge you to do something you don't want to do that he's going to change your plans or maybe he's going to challenge your way of thinking and your perspective like when I was a little girl I'd go to my mom and I complain to her and say oh mom you need to you need to call up Mrs. So-and-so she was so unfair at school she gave me this grade on this test and it's all her fault and she didn't prepare me enough and I didn't get the study materials and what I wanted to hear my mom say was oh poor Kirsten I'm going to call her up right now And I'm going to tell her to change your grade and give you an A++. But guess what she never did? Call up my teacher. Instead, she challenged my perspective. And she said, you need to take responsibility for your actions. You need to respect and honor authority even when you don't agree with him. You need to do what's right even when you don't agree. And you know what? It was pretty annoying. So I went and complained to my dad instead. And he was way nicer. And he bought me ice cream. So... But that was a good mom. She challenged me. And spending time alone with God, he's going to challenge your wrong perspectives, your self-pity, your insecurities, your stubborn attitudes. He's going to begin to challenge it. Maybe you're scared he's going to confront your unforgiveness. Maybe you're holding on to a grudge against somebody because you just feel like it's the last weapon you have against them. And you know what the Bible says about forgiveness. And you know, if you spend time alone with God, he is gonna ask you to lay that down and you don't want to. Maybe you find yourself sitting in disappointment 
Your plans didn't go as you hoped. Life hasn't turned out like you planned. And honestly, you're a little disappointed in God, maybe even mad at him. And so you're avoiding him. You ever avoid someone when you're mad at them? I hate confrontation. Like, I hate confrontation. I am a peace and harmony, loving kind of person. And so when I'm mad at somebody, my instinct is to just avoid them and not deal with the issue. You know, like if they text me, I will leave that text unread. Show them who's boss. (laughs) My husband loves confrontation. I'm pretty sure it's one of his love languages. And uh, he's also a verbal processor. So when we get in a disagreement, it kind of looks like me leaving the room when he walks in. And then he walks into the room and me leaving. So basically, he chases me around the house until he corners me. And he makes me talk about what I'm feeling. And I hate it. But sometimes we can avoid God when we feel angry at him or upset with the events in our life. King David understood. If you read Psalm, you see many times where David feels frustrated or angry even at God. Check this out. In, in Psalm 13, 1 through 6, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look at me and answer, O Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. This is kind of intense, David. Maybe a little dramatic, but you know what? At least he's talking to God about it. Isn't, isn't, it's interesting, too, that after David gets done sharing his frustrations with God and lamenting to God, he ends then the next verse with thanksgiving. And he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. God is big enough to handle your anger. Stop avoiding him, but confess your anger to him, and he's going to begin to heal it and do a work in your life. Maybe for you, your wrestling match is grief. Like me and my family, you're in a season of grief. Maybe you lost somebody years ago, and that grief still feels overwhelming. Maybe it's been recently. It's recent for me. It's fresh. And it's so hard walking through grief. It's uncomfortable. Grief is uncomfortable. I was talking to my mom about it and just how I was struggling with saying goodbye to to dad. And I said, you know, grief kind of feels like a wrestling match in my spirit because I feel so sad sometimes, sometimes angry, sometimes frustrated, sometimes disappointed. And yet I know that God is good. I know his promises are true. I know that there is still hope. And there's this wrestling match. And honestly, I didn't really want to talk about my dad, but I just felt like I needed to share that today because there are other people listening who are in the middle of grief as well. And you feel that wrestling match. You feel that tension in your soul. And I just want to encourage you. Invite God into your grief. 
You can sit in it alone or you can draw near to God. You can grab a hold of him and invite you in and let him bring the peace and the comfort in a way that only he can. Let him sit next to you in your grief. Don't do it alone. I love that getting alone with God allows him to confront those places in our life because it's in that conflict that he just, he does the deepest work in our souls. But I want you to be prepared. Wrestling with God will take effort. Jacob didn't wrestle with God for a few minutes. It wasn't even an hour or two. It says they wrestled till daybreak. They wrestled all night long. Imagine this Jacob wrestling. He was tired. He was sweaty. His muscles were strained. He was pushing himself way beyond what was comfortable. It wasn't easy. And then on top of that, verse 25, remember it said that that God touched the socket of Jacob's hip. He wrenched his his hip out of place as they wrestled. And now if you're a wrestler, you know that that your legs are, are your strongest muscle. They're your greatest asset. And I think it's so interesting that God touched him in his strongest place. You see, God wanted to humble him. He stripped him of his own strength so that Jacob would finally realize that he couldn't rely on his own ability anymore to get him through. He wanted to bring Jacob to a place of desperation, pushing himself beyond the limit of his own ability. Because it's at that limit of ourselves when we get desperate for God. And it's in that desperation that we will find ourselves transformed. Wrestling with God will transform you. Jacob went into that wrestling match as a schemer and a manipulator. That was his identity. That was literally his name. That was who he was. But he came out different. He came out different. He came out changed. Verse 28, it says, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. He was now Israel. The God struggler. Some translations say the God wrestler. Jacob went from somebody who thought he had to earn and strive and achieve his value and his place in this world. But he walked away finally realizing that his blessing, his value, his identity, they weren't acquired in his ability but given to him freely by the Lord. Like Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Wrestling with God changes you. When you wrestle with God, when you grab a hold of him, when you let him do a work in your life, you're gonna begin to walk different. Like Jacob walked with the limp. The way you live this life will be different. The way you speak, it will start to sound different. He's gonna strip away the false securities, the things in your life you used to depend on, the things that you thought your value came from, and he's going to show you where your security is actually found. When you wrestle with God, he's going to challenge the lies that you've been believing over your life, the lies that the enemy's been speaking over you, like unloved and unwanted and forgotten and alone and broken and damaged. He, he will replace those words with your true identity, what he calls you loved and seen and made whole. He replaces those words with the truth from his word. He names you his son and daughter. 
Wrestling with God will change you and transform you. How many of you want God to do a work in your life, to change you and transform you? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And as we close, I just, I just want to end with this warning, though, because we want the transformation. We want God to change us. But the problem is, is that too many people miss out on this transformation because they just tap out too soon. Now, I grew up with three brothers, so I'm very familiar with the rules of wrestling. I know that when you're in a wrestling match and it gets painful, it gets too uncomfortable, when you're ready to quit, you tap on your opponent and the match is over. And too often, when we engage in this wrestling match with God, when we lay it all out before him, he's going to start to confront us. He's going to start to challenge us. He's going to ask us to lay things down in our life that we don't want to, to give up things that we've been holding on to, to let that forgiveness go. He's going to ask us to, to change some of our thought process and our attitudes and our perspective. And it's going to be hard. But even at the most painful part, even after wrestling all night, Jacob wouldn't let go. Even after God touched his hip and he wrenched it out of place, in verse 26, he wouldn't let go. And God says, okay, let me go. It's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, we got to have that same perspective that says, even when it's painful, even when I'm about to break, even when I feel like I can't handle it anymore, even when he asks me to sacrifice so much, I'm going to say, God, I'm not going to let go. I'm going to hold on to you with everything I have and let you do a transformative work in my life. I'm not stopping till I walk away changed, till I find healing, God. I'm going to keep wrestling it out with you. Hold on to God. Don't let go. Don't tap out. He's not done working in your life. He's not done working in those places in your life, the dark places. Invite him in. Watch him bring healing to those places. Watch him bring peace to those places. Would you bow your heads with me? This morning I just want to give everyone an opportunity, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, to make a decision, the best decision you can ever make to give your life to the Lord. Maybe you've been struggling back and forth with God for a long time and you're ready. It is time to lay it down, to surrender, to say, God, I'm in. I'm all yours. I receive your forgiveness. If that's you, I I want to pray with you. And I I just want to lead you in this prayer. It's so simple. Scripture says that all we have to do is just confess and believe and we are saved. And so let's just pray this right now. Everybody with your heads bowed, repeat after me. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for the price you paid on the cross. Thank you for forgiving my sins. I invite you into my life. I surrender all I am to you. And I make a decision today to live for you for the rest of my life. In your precious name we pray. Amen.